0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Monica Calabrito, Associate Professor of Romance Languages at Hunter College, to talk about her new book, Murder and Madness on Trial, a tale of true crime from early modern Bologna, out this year, 2023, with the Penn State University Press. Buongiorno e benvenuta, Monica. Hello and welcome. How are you this morning?
1: Thank you, Yana. I am fine I, here in New York, in Manhattan. Uh, it's foggy here, but at least it's not too cold. So, uh, and uh, I'm really excited to uh, to talk about this this book, this story, with you.
0: This I am so excited to talk to you about this story, because this book is, uh, you know, it's, it's a book, it's between covers, but it's so much more than that. It's this living tale um, of these people that I came to know uh, while reading, and you've come to know while researching. So we're definitely, we're going to talk about a story, maybe a little hot gossip is going to, is what it might sound like a little bit. The rumor. <laughs> yes. All the, yes. <laughs> Much rumor of thumb. Uh, it's very, uh, it's, it's amazing. So yeah, let's get to it. Um. So my first, the first thing we want to do is sort out how this fits into your intellectual story. And there are some ways it's really clear. You have a longstanding interest in madness and medicine, and these are things like they come together, right? You play, this plays at the axis there. But um, the, there's something that's special about this. This guy's been with you for a long time, right? So what did you, Please tell our listeners how you came to write this book. How did this how, how did you meet these people?
1: Yeah, how did you how did I meet Paolo Barbieri? Well, I mean, it was uh a long time ago, uh, 2003 was the first time that I met Paolo, and uh, I met him in Bologna, um, and uh, at the Biblioteca dell'Archiginnasio. Um, my first project, since I am not historian by by um, education, uh, academic background, I'm I was. You know, first I studied classics when I was in Italy, and then I, um, I studied comparative literature. And so after I finished uh, my first years, I mean, I got a job uh, here at Hunter College. And so I said, OK, you know, um, I want to do something that uh, that connects literature and medicine. And one of the ways in which I wanted to connect the, 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 the two elements was through chronicles, you know, the genre of chronicle, early modern chronicle. And so I was in the Biblioteca Ginnasio in the library, and I said, well, let me read a few cases, a few chronicles, and let me see if I can find some uh, some cases of madness. And, um, and to say the truth, to tell you the truth, there were not many, but I found this uh, case in uh, an anonymous chronicle of... Um, of uh, 1588, this was a chronicle that covered only like six years or six or eight years. And I found this chronicle. October 1588, Paolo Barbieri killed his wife in a fit of madness. Is it a fit of madness? Is it not? And so at the end it says that he was tried. And I says, well, maybe I should go to the State Archive and see if there is uh, the the, the criminal trial. And I found it. And then in a very serendipitous way, I found many other documents that enriched the life, not only of Paolo, but of his family, of uh, his wife. And then uh, like... uh, Going into the rabbit hole, uh, hole, I I went and I pursued the story of Paolo through different archives. When he went to Milan uh, in the uh, hospital for mad people, when he was in Pisa before he, you know, he, he killed his wife uh, to become a knight of the Santo Stefano. Um, and then, uh, um, in, uh, in Lucca, where he might or might not have been. And then finally in Rome, not really him, but his brother, um, uh, um, his brother, oh God, I, I have a moment of King below, but I can't remember his name. <laughs> Aurelio. I'm sorry. Aurelio. Um, so, um, where he uh, he has this uh, uh, where where he is going through different uh trial and tribulations to um to resolve the uh, financial downfall that um ensued uh, you know that, that that followed uh Paolo's uh, trial uh, so it, it was like but it was so much intense and uh and when i found um this material I thought that I found a gold mine, and I did. The problem was how to how to narrate the story, how to make it palatable to readers, um, and so that was why, you know, among many other reasons, it took me a long, long time. So I mean, I started, you know, I met Paolo in two thousand and three. And this book was finished in 2020 so i mean it's like 17 years of my life i was with him and with his family uh it gave me a lot of pause you know to think about not only the story in itself but also the emotional um the emotional burden that the the story of madness and murder put on everybody and not only on paolo but and of course, and his wife, the victim, but, and his brother, and his and his mother, and his sister. Uh, so I got to know them much better. And my emotional investment, I think, made the book more interesting to me. I don't know if it would be interesting to other people, but definitely to me. I hope I, I, und- I um, responded to your question.
0: Yeah, that was great. Um, and I like it, it's it's nice because what I what I found interesting particularly was just how long this has been with you that you found this uh, this case. And you I, I like to imagine you, you know, there's this thing and you you read it and you're like, oh, that's in 1588, Paolo Barbieri killed his wife in a fit of madness. Huh. And then, you know, it's 15 years later and you're writing this up finally. Um but I would like to talk about the steps in between that also in, involve your archival exploration to find this. So you were in Bologna mm-hmm. and then also, but you've worked in, you found traces in Milano as well, no? Right. So
1: I worked in Bologna. I work at the State Archive mostly uh, where I did, um, you know, research of, you know, criminal trials. And I found this huge volume that contained, miraculously, the entire proceedings of a criminal trial, which is very, very rare, as you know. And so I was just already, I was like uh, over the moon, you know, uh, having found that. And then um, I found out that um, uh, uh, through um, documents, I found out that he was in Milan in a hospital called San Vincenzo in Prato, which was an old hospital that was then connected Next to um, the Ospedale Maggiore in Milan, uh, but the Hospital of San Vincenzo in Prato was much older. And um, when uh, the um, a hospital of, uh, of uh, Ospedale Maggiore in uh, in um, in Milan was restructured, at the uh, you know mid fifteenth century, they decided to send different patients uh, to different hospitals, and the Hospital of San Vincenzo in Prato was the hospital where med people were uh, sent, both men and women. And so Paolo, uh, you know, meandered for several years after he killed his wife. We don't know exactly where, but then he ended up more or less two years later after uh, killing his wife in Milan. And then and Danny stayed for like eight, eight years. And so I found something there. Um, and I remember talking about uh, anecdotical anecdotal uh, anecdote. Um, I remember that I went to the, um, to the Archivo di Ospedale Maggiore and there was the uh, the chief archivist there. And I said, well, I'm looking for some information about this guy. I said, well, we don't have a lot about uh, uh, mm, ar- ar- archival Uh, sources about uh, before a certain date, because a lot of these sources were burned, were dispersed, you know. And so, but, you know, we have this. So I started looking and then uh, I found the name of Paolo Barbieri. And being the very enthusiastic, you know, person that I am, started jumping. (laughs) And I went to the archive, he says, I found it, I found it! And he looked at me and says, this woman is a little bit unbalanced, but <laughs> okay. Wonderful.
0: As he looks back at his newspaper and hopes you go away. <laughs> exactly. Okay. That's nice, ma'am. Yeah.
1: yeah, it was in two thousand eight. So I mean, it's like that. That that I is when I found out traces of Paolo. Uh, and uh, so yes, I went to Milan, and then there was um, always through a a document that I found out that Paolo might have gone to Luca. And so I went to Luca for two long summers. I mean, I spent like two weeks there trying to find something, but I didn't find anything. And so maybe, you know, he was under a pseudonym. That's what I, I tried to speculate in the book. Maybe he wasn't there, I don't know, but I, I, um, I was in Lucca. And then in Pisa, of course, uh, where he was the knight of uh, Santo Stefano, uh, the order established by the Grand Duke uh, Tuscany. And um, And then I went to Rome, but that was, you know, because of his brother, Aurelio, because Aurelio incurred in a lot of financial trouble, and, um, and my supposition, my, my hypothesis is that Aurelio, um, was, um, like at odds with his family and, um, he lived in, in, in Rome. He wasn't, uh, you know, in contact with his family, according to legal documents, he, he was really uh, fighting with his mother and his sister and, uh, and then he died there alone. So, um. That was, you know, some very sad story I have to say. So,
0: this is a very sad story. I mean, it starts with the murder, so I guess we shouldn't be surprised that it, you know, but it's 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 a sad story. Um, So you're just relentless in your pursuit, right? I mean, that's this is Bologna to Milan to Luca, and yeah, there's no maybe he was in Luca. The absence of archival material doesn't mean any. You know, doesn't tell us it didn't happen, uh, sadly. You know, that's very interesting that you're in all these places. Um, all right. So let's talk about the material you did find, the source material. And you found an immense amount of material, right? This is a huge case, lots of paper. Um, at the heart of this, there's this trial. So Paolo Barbieri murdered his wife. So what can you tell us about that? What is this event? And what, how, do you, how did you read it? How did you find it?
1: So, um, I, um, when I first read it, um, I have to be honest, I, I knew very little about, you know, uh, the insanity defense and, uh, you know, intermittent insanity, etc. cetera. Uh, because my interest for, um, for insanity before was from a literary philosophical point of view. Um, I was interested in psycho- psychoanalysis, I read Foucault, uh, you know, I was like, um, like a, a good literary critic as I, as I was uh, by training. And then when I read this book, I said I have to. I have to get some new tools to understand better this story. And so, this story deals with uh, um, um, criminal madness, with a murder um, that this man Paolo Barbieri, committed, and the defense lawyer who is not. Paolo's defense lawyer, but is the defense lawyer of his brother? Why? Because Paolo, I should start by saying that Paolo kills his wife and then he escapes, and uh, and and that, according to the judge, was the uh, sure proof that he was, um, it was um aware of what he has done. Now, according insanity defense that goes back to uh, the the roman law if you are able to prove that you committed a crime in a moment of insanity you don't that uh, you don't need to be prosecuted but if you do commit a crime and you are aware you even if you know you've been insane before or after you are uh, you have to be prosecuted and so the judge took this moment you know took this this um, factor that is paolo killed his wife he faked according to the judge his madness he escaped so the people who were put on trial were not paolo but were. What the judge considered his accomplices, and among the accomplice, accomplices, there was Aurelio Barbieri, his brother. And so, his brother is uh, uh, is a very interesting figure. He's the uh, the the older brother, and uh, he um, he um, he finds himself in in a pickle and he says well it's not my fault i didn't do anything he's trying to um to to show uh you know the the judge that um he helped paolo um um sending him clothes etc um because he um he thought that he um he didn't kill anybody he didn't know that he that his wife, and uh, but the judge didn't didn't buy that, and so the defense lawyer Aurelio's defense lawyer tried to argue that Paulo was insane and to use the so called the def- insanity defense, the intermittent insanity uh, uh, you know um, argument, but with no avail. The judge didn't buy it. Okay, and Paulo was. Uh, condemned to death in absentia, and uh, then he was allowed to come back. Uh, and but there wasn't bec- it wasn't because people, you know, the, there were other people in power. But to my understanding, it was simply because not because of compassion, but because there were economical interests at play. Um, and I can go there, you know, I can explain that better if you want in detail, but, um, but the story is so in- intricate and it was intricate to me as well at the beginning. Cause I, I said, how does it, how does this square with the other details? So it took me a while to understand uh, that underneath uh, the appearance, there were other motivations, you know, from different actors, the sister, the Her husband, his mother, his brother, you know, his, his ex, um, his older uh, business partner. There were so many interests. And at the center of this, there was Paolo, you know, the killer, but also the insane person.
0: So you've got... Um, so you've got criminal trials, and you've got civil proceedings and court, like a lot of this court language, all of these different voices are talking to you, right? And um, it's, I I think there's a couple things to note. The first is that possibly the person you hear from the least is actually Paolo, um, or at least not very much, right? Everyone's talking about Paolo, but you don't hear much from Paolo at all. Um, And then there's all these different kind of ways to go about. One of the things about working in the archives is you learn that every every run of documents or every kind of document has its own language, right? So uh if if a brother is suing a brother and you have this legal document there's certain things they're going to talk about if it's a court document it's another thing how did you handle this like how many different languages you know and, and metaphorical languages all italian i imagine although some dialects were probably different but how many different court languages did you need to learn here to navigate this pile of documents um a lot.
1: You know, many. Uh, and that, that's, that is why also it took me an enormous amount of time. And I had to be very patient because um, many times I said to myself, OK, that's it. I, can, I can't do this. I mean, I don't have the tools. I am inadequate, etc. But then, I mean, there is a certain perseverance that is pushed by that by desperation, but also by the fact that I invested so much in the story, it says, okay, I cannot give up now. And so when I was in, in the state archive, I mean, I got acquainted with, um, with the court uh, language, with the criminal language of the judge, of uh, the notary. You know, uh, the voice is filtered through, you know, the, the writing of the notary. Um, these people speak. Uh, and they speak with an inflection, with a dialect, uh, with uh, um, with uh, it, they express certain emotions. But then there is this the, the figure of the notary that writes down everything, and uh, he writes in Latin, and then uh, uh, and then he writes the the uh, answers of um, the witnesses or the, the defendants. Um, but he doesn't say everything. It doesn't transcribe everything. And uh, it doesn't report everything. And so um, sometimes uh, um, you have like a, a, a small hint of what uh, the, the person may feel. Like, for instance, at a certain point, I remember Aurelio, you know, has been, uh, the, the brother has been um, uh, um, has been, um, interrogated so many times by the judge and the judge asks him a question about, you know, do you know, d- did you, or didn't you know about this bowl, the people bowl that, you know, uh, that, 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 um, says that if you. Uh, um defend, uh, um 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 a criminal then uh, your properties will be confiscated and you will also be uh in- incriminated and uh and it you know Aurelio was was um was uh was trained as a as a as a lawyer and so he knows I mean to how to swivel all around and to say well and then at the end he's sort of exasperated and says well, you know, I have, you know, do I have to tolerate this? I don't remember now exactly the the expression in And he says, come on, I mean, give me a break. And then he says, well, at this point, my lawyer will answer this question. So you feel this, you know, this um, element of like frustration. And then there are other points in which there is an, another, uh, another defense in which it, it, that they said, who says, please, I mean, I didn't know, I begged you, I didn't know that that was a crime, but please, I mean, I will do everything, anything to to uh, collaborate with you. And so there, there are moments, I mean, there are these emotional pivotal moments that that tell you that what is written on the page is not exactly what went on in this small room where you know, the, the defendant, the witness, and the judge with the notary were, you know, together. And that is what fascinated me, you know, in uh, reading this criminal trials, because there are so many, there are traces of orality, you know, um, that circulate around this uh, written word world. And, and that is also what what was it the center of my attention while dealing with chronicles so both in a in a way you know in a different way but in a similar at the same in a similar way
0: yeah there's this whole there's a conversation that's happening in this room and you only get a trace of that and held in a different medium exactly and, then they're, and they're referring to this much bigger act that is now two steps away from you at least and nobody's mm-hmm. being honest either, or they're being as honest, you know, yeah.
1: And that is, yeah, because I mean, that is uh, something that, that um, interests me uh, a lot, um, um, the judicial truth. I mean, uh, what is juridical truth is different from the social truth. I mean, and what is, uh, in a way, I mean, in an in earlier version of this book, because I read, I, I wrote so many versions and, um, and we can talk about that later. But anyway, in an earlier version, I spent uh, much more time talking about deception. So what is deception? What is the, 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 um, the uh the, the the tension between truth and lie you know how can you the de- you, how can you detect you know this you know this this um how, how can you detect whether a person is lying or not and, or how can you detect if a person is hiding something you know and 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 to a certain extent some of the main actors including aurelio were definitely hiding something but it's in more in general, I mean, the juridical truth is different from from the social truth. It's different from, you know, the and also the fact in itself. I mean, there is um, there is this idea that the fact is something that you can use to your own advantage. You, we can see it also nowadays. I mean, uh, there is a fact, something happened, and then you see it narrated from a certain point of view, and then you see it narrated from the other point of view, and now when you put them together, they seem completely different stories, you know. And and that is uh, sometimes what happens, you know, um, in in the court, in the court system um, at that time and nowadays. I mean, I don't want to sound trans-historical because I, I, I don't want to sound anachronistic because I know that there are enormous differences, you know, uh, between then and now. Um, I never lived in 16th century, and and I will never leave. You know, it's like, but there is, you know, this this like um, larger issues, um, like what is the truth? How do you find the truth? How, you know, how to how to, to detect. The lie in 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 a, in a in a statement, that's something that is more existential beyond uh, the the limits of of a, of a time period. At least that's what what I think.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I agree with you, um, and that's these layers pulling back these layers and trying to construct something because you want to construct you know want to get to the fact of what happened but that's impossible right so then what's plausible how do you put this together and then the question of what it means which is a thing we can try to understand as well and that is a whole nother level that's a very different level of truth as well right how this is read and what how this makes sense um which is one of the things that's very interesting here is your take on madness, um, which um, we tend to think of as a 19th century. Some people would call it a 19th century intervention. Some people would call it like very modern. Um, but of course, what what madness is, is its own thing. It's constructed differently everywhere. So I think my first question is, you know, what what does madness mean in the early modern context? What if you how can you be not guilty as a a, by virtue of insanity in 1588 in Bologna? Well, so my interest in madness
1: uh, uh, coming to this book um, and while I was reading this book, uh, I developed a big interest in melancholy and um, from a medical point of view. So I read medical treatises dealing with uh, um, the, the illnesses of the head, you know, so what they called at that time, the illnesses of the head. So it was melancholic, mania, uh, hypochondriac melancholic, um, love, sickness, and all these things. And um, so at that time, madness insanity or furor as it was you know called that you know from a legal point of view uh but in medical terms was uh, um, um an illness that was caused by physiological uh, physiological factors um the uh, humors the imbalance of the humors uh the fumes that were come out, you know, that would raise from, you know, the liver or the, uh, uh, the stomach to the head and that would create, um, and would produce inside. And that was basically what doctors who visited Paolo before, you know, he committed the homicide, uh, said to his family. So he is suffering of, uh, um, of a uh, or melancholicus melancholic, melancholic fui of insania it has to follow a certain diet etc cetera, etc cetera. so paolo is an example of what an insane person is you know it's a he's a person he or she is a is a person who has a um a humoral imbalance um or an excess of matter that has to be expelled um But I argue also that there are some um, psychological, uh, as we can say, psychological features. So it's not only physiological. That's always what, you know, the big issue when we talk about um, melancholy or insanity or madness is, is it only somatic or is it also, you know, psychological? And so I think that even in in the insania, Uh, Even when we talk about insania in in the early modern period, there are some psychological factors or there are signs that are not only physiological, but also psychological. So being, you know, silent for days on end, um, having this uh, feats of violence. uh, These are all signs that that are... um, that are recognized, you know, from a medical point of view, but also from a legal point of view. So um, the two disciplines come together at a certain point, especially, and it's interesting because the two disciplines come together um, in the 16th century and then in the 17th century because of the notion of deception. How can we deceive, How can we detect whether, for instance, a person who is mad is is pretending to be mad or not? And so that is uh, um, that is the the end point uh, with uh, Paolo Zacchia, with uh, other writers uh, who um, compose, um, who write. Uh, treatises, uh, medical, medical legal treatises, but before going there, there, there are like uh, both doctors and uh, men of law uh, who are um, trying to understand the um, the, the the identity of uh, an insane person. What is an insane person? What are the actions that define an insane person? And one of the most compassionate phrases in defense of an insane person doesn't come from a doctor, but it comes from uh, Baldo de Ubaldi, uh, this 14th century uh, famous uh, um, uh, expert who wrote, that a man who is a, a person who is uh, um, who is mad has been punished enough by his own madness, by his or her own madness, and so there is an understanding of what of the devastating effects of what madness or what insanity does to a person. But this sentence is not. Uh, is is not accepted by other uh, legal experts of that time and even later, and so there is this debate. You know, it's like, uh, what? I mean, are you insane? Are you you tell me that you're insane for a while, but then uh, you get lucid. And uh, what does it mean? I mean, how can how can we uh, how can we um, um, judge you if you know? You are you are flip flopping between your your condition, and so the intermittent insanity um, is a very difficult defense. And um, I was reading actually recently, in a case of a, of a man uh, who you know schizo- was schizophrenic, killed you know a person, uh, and um, he was first. Uh, um judged um unfit to to go to trial but then after two mistrials he was condemned to life in prison and uh the article said that this person that the the insanity defense uh is successful in very in a very few cases i remember that over a thousand cases where the defense is used only like five or six, you know, mm-hmm. are successful. So it's an infinitesimal um, number. Uh, and uh, that says something about then and now, the condition, you know, wh- what is to be insane for a person? What is to define an illness that is not visible? You know, it's like because you, you're talking about everything that I, that I mentioned before is, is these are signs, right? Psychological signs, et cetera. There could be also physical signs. I was saying, you know, if you are dark in that in the face, I mean, you can be considered melancholic or, you know, manic. And But the problem is that how can you define something that is, uh, that you can't touch, you know, psycho. like when you have a cancer, when you have an abscess, you see it. But with a mental you know with with madness insanity what we call now mental mental illness you don't see it and so that is also the that comes from there comes the issue of uh, evidence what is an evidence how can you define truth from something that you don't see you know and the the, the question the issue of probability the question of you know this is like circumstantial, circumstantial evidence. It's not something that I can see. So there are a lot of factors that come, that gather around the issue of, uh, of insight. And that's what fascinated me. And that's also what brought me away from my literary endeavors, from my you know research and literary analysis. And I found this much more fascinating, I have to say.
0: I get that. Um, I mean, but so how do you do it? If I wanted to prove that you know I'm a lawyer, I want to prove that my client is not guilty because of insanity. How do I do that? What can I do to make other people believe my client's insane? So the 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 the, the lawyer,
1: uh, Grato, uh, the the defense lawyer, Aurelio's defense lawyer, tried to uh, try different. Uh, paths, different roads, but basically he brought up the medical expert. So he, he brought a bunch of, of a, a trio of, of doctors, uh, two of them extremely famous, and uh, and he said, uh, "Well, you you visited them. Uh, you visit uh, you visited Paolo in the summer before the uh, the the murder, and uh, write something." That uh, emphasizes the fact that he was uh, he was mad, you know, that he was suffering of this condition that would bring him, you know, to harm possibly a person. That's that's you know that was uh, um, the most important device or defense that he could find at that point. So find the medical expertise, and I should say that. You know the collaboration with doctors and uh, with law and medicine um, goes back centuries. I mean, in 13th century, you know, there were already you know doctors involved. There are a lot of colleagues who wrote you know on, on this issue and talked and wrote much better than I did. And 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 the collaboration, but um in this particular case and already in the 16th century there was a collaboration sometimes the collaboration wasn't really uh, cordial but nevertheless i mean the medical experts were brought to the, to uh, to um write a document uh and in this document this doctor say you know we saw this man he he you know um 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 he had this signs I mean uh, he um manifested the signs and uh um we think we we don't have any doubt that um he was uh suffering from um uh, uh, from insania he um stopped taking medications and that's why he went on the deep end and um uh, he killed his wife. But then in a moment of uh, lucidity, he realized what he had done and he escaped. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't insane. And, uh, and the most famous doctor, this guy, Girolamo Mercuriali, was like a diva of that time. Uh, he writes that uh, he said, I don't have a doubt in my mind that um, that um, Paolo Barbieri was insane, and uh, and I am convinced, and I stay, and I stand by this idea. The problem is that this was a document that the defense lawyer asked. When uh, in the defensive phase of the trial, the uh, the defense lawyer Grato tries to present this this documents to the judge. The judge blocks him and says, "Uh uh-uh, you can't. I don't accept this. Why? Because by accepting this letter, it would mean that the judge accepted Paolo's insanity and therefore he accepted the fact that Paolo wasn't aware that he killed his wife, whereas the judge was convinced that Paolo actually was aware that he had volition. And that what he did, that he knew that what he did was morally indefensible. And so those documents, I found them not in the trial, but by chance in a fondo, in another, uh, you know, uh, in another section of the archive where, uh, you know, this document, uh, these documents, because there were many of them, were stashed. Uh, and that was really another discovery that I did without knowing what I, what I, what I was going to find.
0: Wow. So, I mean, there's this question of how medicine works and the doctors coming in and then just expertise and what you expect of expertise and, and how voices work in a trial. That's a lot of lenses. Um, and it's interesting, I know, because I know your interest in madness doesn't just end in the early modern period, you were you continue to be interested in madness, especially criminal madness. Now. Um, at, are we, I mean, it seems like this is a very, sim, very uh, familiar reading the, by the the Barbieri case felt very familiar to me in a lot of ways. Do you see similarities? Are you do you make connections? Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: I think that um, um, <clears throat> for personal reasons, I write something in uh, in the introduction to my book. I I'm interested also in uh, in you know mental illness, what we call now mental illness, and um, I'm also interested in cases you know where um, mentally ill people nowadays um, are incriminated. Uh, for homicide. Um, and so I was thinking of uh, two cases. One was the case that I mentioned before, um, a man here in New York who killed um, his therapist um, because uh, he thought that um, this therapist was uh, keeping him from uh, seeing his uh, mother and uh, um and, and that his mother would die without, you know, um, his care. So um, the guy was uh, was was tried, was first uh, found not fit for trial, and then after two mistrials, was uh, condemned to death uh, to death <laughs> to life in in prison. But he was put, you know, in prison where in a psychiatric unit. So he was spent his life in a psychiatric unit. And uh, and his brother, you know, says uh, said at the end of this of this trial, he says now justice has been done for for the victim, for the woman, you know, whom he killed. But then he says now justice has to be done for my 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 brother because my brother has been suffering for more than twenty five years, right? And then um, I. Uh, I, I just started reading an article on the uh, on the Atlantic today um, the, an article that in is interest is, is entitled American Madness where the author talks about um, a person who killed in uh, 1998 his girlfriend thinking that she was an alien and uh, that um, uh, she wanted to to kill him. And uh, these are cases that happened like in the last 30 years and less. I mean, the case that I talked about before happened in 2008 and it was resolved in 2014. And yet, you know, the insanity defense didn't work, you know, with Paolo Barbieri is not working now, Um and uh, the victim is, of course, the person who dies. I mean that there is no doubt about it. Uh, but the victim is also the person who is suffering from uh, mental illness. Uh, these people have hallucinations. I mean, uh, Paolo himself, my Paolo, said that he, um, he 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 thought, you know, that somebody was persecuting him, that somebody wanted to kill him. Um, and, um and in these cases, you have people who think you know they they hear the voice of God or the voice of the devil. And once again, I don't want to be trans transhistorical, but there is a some essential truth here. And the essential truth for me here is that madness, insanity, mental illness, whatever you want to call it, still brings an enormous stigma. To the person who is uh, uh, who uh, who has it, and that brings an enormous burden of uh, guilt, of emotions, of of anger in the family, in the loved ones that uh, that surround this person, and uh, that hasn't been resolved yet. Is is and I don't know. I mean, nowadays here in New York, I mean, we're talking about. Homeless people, uh, you know, mentally unstable people, I see them, you know, what are we doing for them? You know, what is the solution? I I don't have it, of course, but that is something that I would like to discuss, you know, um, which is not putting them in prison, uh, but um, finding a way, recognizing their guilt if they committed a crime, but also giving them Help when they needed it, uh, and I know it's not easy. But um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's something that m- make me pause. You know, that something that, that makes me think about 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 how we treat you know people uh, with uh, who are mentally ill.
0: Oh. Monica, I've taken up so much of your time already, and that seems like a great place to to put a pin in this conversation, to bring this conversation to a close. Um, so I just have one more question, which is, what are you working on next? What's next? What are you working on now? What's next? So um, I,
1: uh, I am working on an edited book on uh, the notion of suicidality um, with um, two colleagues, um, we, um, we are presenting the project for this book to a publishing house. Hopefully, you know, the publishing house will, uh, will accept it. Um, and, um, it, it, I went, I mean, I, 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 I came about suicidality because of, of melancholy, because of insanity. So, I mean, there's a uh, cases, I study cases of people who were considered mad or insane and then Tried to commit suicide. And that's one of, of the project. Uh, the other project is larger and um, and it deals actually with uh, the notion of um, fact and verisimilitude. Uh, so I'm interested in how to um, to narrate story um, in. Um, in a historical account, and how to narrate story, for instance, in a fictional account. Uh, so, um, my interest, uh, for instance, in historical fiction or in historical novel, uh, um, is um, is linked with um, um, my interest in microhistory. So, how to narrate, you know, an event, um, how to um, to tell a good story, you know that is based on uh, on factual events and so i i'm interested in in uh, tackling this uh, argument which is huge um from um a, a theoretical uh, you know point of view putting to my 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 two interests i mean the interest in literature and the interest in history in particular in uh,
0: microhistory
1: so that's uh that's my my next big
0: project. Uh, That sounds fascinating. I want to talk to you some more about that. Uh, All right, listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, The book, once again, is Murder and Madness on Trial, A Tale of True Crime from Early Modern Bologna, out this year, 2023, with the Penn State University Press. You can follow a link on our website to get your hands on a copy. It's a great story, and you do want to hear it. And uh, Monica, thank you so much for joining me. It was lovely to talk to you. Yes, absolutely. Likewise. (laughs) Okay. All right. Take care.